Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 14th, 2022. This is episode 3125 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Thursday, and it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show today. I got a great lineup for you. Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights will talk about the politics of hate backfiring. And we're giving bombs to the Saudis for oil. How do the Yemenis feel about that? Dan McAdams there will cover that one. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about the carnivore diet for type 1 diabetics, what it can do for them, and the limitations as well. Jeff Lawton will talk about turning a swamp into a pond. John Pugliano will talk about how the rich use debt leverage for tax-free cash flow. That's going to be an interesting one. Nicole Sauce will talk about making fruit leathers. And what do you do if you want a can and you got a glass top stove and bad things can happen if you try to do that? Well, it's a simple, low-cost solution to this. Nick Ferguson will talk about willow trees invading a pond and what to do about it. And I have something to add to that one that I, I think would be really helpful in this situation if you get the timing right. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about replacing an old toilet. And in my segment today, I'm going to talk about education. Uh, because I'm actually going to be appearing in a virtual summit with John Bush's uh, online Free the Children Homeschool Summit today. I'll be doing that at 1 o'clock p.m. If you're listening to us any time before that, you can uh, go to Live Free Academy and you can learn more about that. There will be a link in the notes today where you can get that uh, event. Um, but I'm going to talk about a quote here today. And I think this is an incredibly important thing for people to start realizing, and it's so old, it goes back to Aristotle, but we have forgotten the wisdom of our ancestors. He said once, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. So ponder that as we plow through today's episode, and I will make that my anchor segment. Before we bring the expert council members on, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day, which is really one sponsor with two websites. Paul Wheaton and Permies.com, also RichSoil.com, is a treasure trove of information and community. I always hear people saying, hey, how do I find like-minded people in my area? If you go to Permies.com and you get on the forums, you just might find that some of the people on them forums over there don't live that far away from you, and then maybe you'd have a like-minded person to form an in-real-life relationship with. You can find out about all of Paul's awesome stuff, his Kickstarters. Do you know, Paul Wheaton, if you if you create especially electronic content of books and, and stuff like that, e-books and whatever, he has a whole board on his forums just for members to market their products to each other and to sell their products with. It is an awesome resource. I think it's one that's highly underutilized by our community. Check them out today. Again, permies.com and richsoil.com. They will all kind of funnel into the same common place, but they have different functionalities. The permies is more about the forums, and Rich Soil has just an incredible 
incredible archive of information. I mean everything. Hugel culture, cast iron cooking, building wafatis. What's a wafati? You don't know? You ain't heard Paul talk about wafati? Get on over there and find out. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our first expert uh, today. Uh, again, Ron Paul Liberty highlights. We've got two of them. Uh, for you today, two members of the of the team over there, uh, Ron on the politics of hate and backfiring, and Dan McAdams on this whole idea that we're going to give the Saudis more bombs so that they'll give us more oil. What a mess. On the philosophy, I, I think the two parties agree way too much, and now the contest is only on power. And uh, there, there's a contest going on in that about who who can hate the most. And I, it's real easy for me to remind myself that hate is not worth anything. Everybody has a natural tendency to want to take care of themselves and, and uh, take care of their families. And, and some people might call that selfishness. But in a way, it's looking to your own responsibility to, uh, to care for oneself and your, and your family. And, uh, and I think the best way to do that is to avoid the temptation to really get annoyed with these terrible people who want to provoke you by just bugging you and really are hateful and they use political power to do it because it takes too much energy too much energy that doesn't mean you have to accept it it means you have to work harder and you have to use the technique of bringing people together and pointing out the fallacy of their ideas that to me will preserve the uh, ability to do that but if if it's driven by hate and i think that's where the democrats are right now everything's been driven by hate and they're falling apart but uh, they, they don't have a monopoly of this, uh, of this position. But right now, they're in a mess. So all the hate they expend, all the energy they expended, you know, uh, uh, during uh, uh, Trump's uh, campaign, 416, and what he went, what he did in the office and what he's doing now, uh, it's, it's a negative. It is it, people who think that, well, I can return more hate than they can, and that's going to enhance me, and then I can beat them because I'm going to be more hateful and I'll have more power. Guess what? It backfires on it. Those individuals uh, end up short. And, and, and I think that's what's happened. There's a cost when you put all your energy into hating people and think you can gain peace and prosperity that way. We have a different solution for gaining peace and prosperity, and that is the promotion of liberty. You know, obviously, this whole <laughs> trip is about oil. He's going over there to beg the Saudis for more oil. And the question is, what leverage does he have? Well, not much. Because the the, Russia, the sanctions against Russia, we as we know, have backfired. They've caused the oil prices to skyrocket. Well, you know, the rising sea lifts all ships, so the Saudis are making also record money off of the oil, thanks to the U.S.'s boneheaded sanctions policy against Russia. Russia's just selling it everywhere else. And so what do you do? You've got $8 a gallon gas in places. You have Biden at the lowest point of his popularity, with even the vast majority of his own party saying, we don't want this guy again. Can someone take him off our hands? So what do you do? Well, you send him begging to Saudi Arabia. And let's put that first clip on. This is via our friends at antiwar.com. This is a Reuters piece exclusive. U.S. weighs resumption of offensive arms sales to Saudis. And I was wondering, well, what do we have as leverage? What does Biden have as leverage? Well, back in last February, Dr. Paul, you know, the worst war in the world, and we've talked about it forever, is the Saudi aggression toward Yemen. They've basically turned that country into a moonscape, killed millions of people, and just turned it into hell on earth. Well, 
they slowed down a little bit back in uh, after May 20 after uh, 2021 February when the Biden administration rightly said, okay, no more offensive weapons. Uh, you guys need to cool it with this. And there was a ceasefire that's been violated pretty often by the Saudis. Nevertheless, not as bad as it was. So what's our, what's Biden's leverage to get more oil out of the Saudis? Well, the blood of Yemen, and that's what it is, because he's going to go over there and he's going to say, hey, we need some oil. You guys want some uh, air-to-air missiles? You want some other good stuff? Okay, we'll give you the stuff again. We'll turn our we'll turn away from Yemen. We won't worry about it. But we need that oil because I have got an election coming up. Something very interesting just happened in that segment. And I'm wondering if any of you picked it up by looking through the permaculture lens. It's not really about the two topics themselves. But there's 15 seconds in there of Dr. Paul speaking. I'm going to play it again for you. Think permaculture. And then you tell me, in your head anyway, what you just heard about. Everybody has a natural tendency to want to take care of themselves and and, uh, take care of their families. And and some people might call that selfishness. But in a way, it's looking to your own responsibility to uh, to care for oneself and and your family. So you permaculturists, did you get it? It's the entire ethos of permaculture summed up by Bill Mollison in what we call the Prime Directive. And I quote, The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. End quote, Bill Mollison. Ron Paul, who I do not think is a permaculturist, who I do not think has studied the permaculture's designer's manual or anything like that, just gave you the Prime Directive of permaculture in a political take. Do you know why? This is the beauty of permaculture. It's not about growing trees and plants. That's a thing that we do with permaculture. Permaculture is a design science based on the common ethics of multiple indigenous peoples. When Bill Mollison came up with the Prime Directive and the three ethics, care of earth, care of people, return of surplus, he studied, I think it was something like 47 indigenous cultures that were still around, so you could still talk to them. They still had remnants and said, what are, what are the, what are the things by which you live? And then he took, and these, these people were spread out across the world. These weren't like, you know, 40 some odd tribes of Australian Aborigines. When you say Australian Aborigines, that would be one of 40. And the common ethos and ethics were distilled down to those four things. And that's why you will hear it come from people who have never approached it from the permaculture angle because it is common human ethics. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and for that of our children. Let's go on to something else. Doc Ken Berry with a question by someone who has a type 1 diabetic child in relation to the carnivore diet. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Ben. Ben's son has been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, Ben's question is, is there a way to have my son on a no-carb, high-fat diet and avoid insulin altogether? All the doctors are telling me no because he would go into DKA. This is diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, one of my big worries is because I'm a prepper and I would like a solution if I'm not able to get insulin. Any advice would help. Thanks. 
Excellent question, Ben. And I would tell you, Ben, and everybody who has type 1 diabetes or has a family member with type 1 diabetes, I have several videos on my YouTube channel about type 1 diabetes that will answer this in much more detail. The short answer to your question, Ben, is that no, your son is going to need some form of exogenous insulin, even if he is eating a zero-carb, high-fat carnivore diet because protein also has to have some insulin in order to get broken down. Insulin actually does hundreds of different jobs in your son's body, uh, Ben, and also in your body as well. But people who have a, a, a functioning pancreas and the functioning beta cells, they make insulin without having to think about it, but your son does not. So he's going to have to have some form of injectable insulin, but the good news is, is he's going to need 80 or 90% less insulin if he's eating a zero-carb carnivore diet. And so when it comes to prepping, just imagine if your son was needing 200 units of insulin a day, how quickly you would run out of any insulin you were able to get your hands on versus if he was only needing 10 to 30 units a day, your insulin supply would last much, much longer. And so in a, in a prepping situation, you absolutely have to have a good supply of insulin and a good source of insulin, but your son's going to need 80 or 90% less insulin if he's eating a zero-carb carnivore diet, which is, that's, that's if nothing, you know, worst-case scenario, he's going to be able to live much, much longer. Now, also in a prepper situation, if you run out of insulin, if your son eats the rice and beans, then his blood sugar is going to be 500. If instead he eats some some sheep and quail eggs and duck eggs because you're a prepper and you've got that on your on your property, then his blood sugar is just going to go to 150 to 200. Now, which one sounds more dangerous until you can put your hands on some more insulin for your son? I would much rather his his blood sugar levels be 200 than 5 or 600. Because the 200, although not perfectly safe, is much less dangerous than him running a uh, blood sugar of 500 or 600. Now let's talk about the DKA. DKA in type 1 diabetics never comes from eating a low-carb diet. That's a complete and utter myth. It never comes from being in ketosis. Again, a medical myth. And your doctors answering the question the way they did tells you and tells me that they don't know a damn thing about the difference between ketosis and ketoacidosis. Your son will develop ketoacidosis if he has an infection and also runs out of insulin or has an injury and runs out of insulin or has some kind of inflammation and runs out of insulin. Uh, DKA can only happen in the face of very low levels of insulin availability and very, very high levels of blood sugar. And then usually also it requires an infection, an injury, or an inflammation. It doesn't just happen because he's eating zero carb or because he's in uh, therapeutic ketosis. That's not the way it works. So store as much insulin as you can. Have your son eat as low carb as he possibly can and will. You didn't tell me his age, so I don't know how much reason and logic you can use with him. But if he's very, very young then make sure he's as low-carb as he will tolerate without feeling like, you know, he's in the gulag. But uh, eating zero-carb is never going to make him develop DKA. That's a myth. Hope this uh, helped. And please, if any of you guys 
know someone who has type 1 diabetes, please share my YouTube videos about type 1 diabetes with them. It, it arms them, and it gives them the ammunition they need to actually stand up to their doctor and say, hey, idiot, eating keto is not going to make me go into DKA. What the hell are you talking about? This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. I just want to add to this. I, I think that the American Diabetes Association is an organized criminal racket because this is the advice that every single type 1 diabetic should be getting. Uh, type 2s as well, because they wouldn't be type 2s for very long if they followed this advice in 99.9% of, of situations. Because type 2 diabetes isn't diabetes. It's, it's destroying your body's ability to resist insulin. It's, it's an illness that is a lifestyle illness. Type 1 diabetes is a curse. I, I would imagine most people living with type 1 diabetes would probably enjoy the opportunity to punch a type 2 diabetic in the face. Because they're, they're choosing to live with an illness the other person is stuck with. But if you go to the American Diabetes Association's website and you click on, like, they have a recipe section that tells diabetics what to eat, you will see them recommending meals, individual meals with more than 100 carbohydrates in a single meal. And it is impossible that all of these doctors are simply unaware of the fact that this is killing the people that they're recommending this to. But you know what? There's a lot of money selling insulin, and do you think that the drug companies that manufacture insulin really want to sell less insulin, or do you think they want to sell more insulin? So if you give diabetics advice that increases their insulin dependence, you make more money. And I am, I am dead serious. I am not being facetious. I think the American Diabetes Association is a criminal organization that is killing people and doing so knowingly. Don't listen to them. Listen to people like Dr. Barry. Next up, let's talk about trying to turn a swamp into a pond. It seems like an easy thing to do, but there are some complications in getting it done. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And um, we've got a question about um, a small area, um, just half an acre, where part of the property is a wooded, overgrown swamp. And... Um, the um, question is, if they clear it, how do you make that into a pond as the lowest point? Well, um, you are going to have trouble draining it and making it dry. So you really need something like a swamp dozer or a, a swamp excavator with wide tracks. And then, because um, as you dig, it's going to flood in straight away. Unless you can pump it out as you're digging, um, it sounds like it's just going to fill from groundwater. And um, it will depend on the sun angles, um, whether you get enough light in to grow uh, a fruit or nut orchard around the pond. Um, and it will depend on the material that comes out. So um, you'll be, you'll be, what you dig is what you get. And um, you'll be uh, piling the material around uh, the cleared area and making the pond in the clearing. And inside of that will be the actual pond wall and um, we don't have to worry too much about raising the water level it's literally sounds like it's at a groundwater level already um, it will be rather tricky to get good material to grow trees in because it's probably high clay subsoil so it it's going to be a matter of scavenging up all the good topsoil and putting it to one side and then building the wall around the pond out of the subsoil clay and then top dressing it again 
with the topsoil so you've got a better growing medium for your um, trees that like being near a swamp and nut trees that like being in that situation but literally what you dig is what you get and what you get is a raised area so you'll intensify the water and intensify the land so instead of being a swamp you'll have a deep pond and instead of having wet swampy ground you'll have raised mound and it doesn't really matter so much about its ceiling it's more that it's going to just fill from ground water so your overflow can be set up um, next to the end of the pond mound wall and could be probably two overflows of equal height going either side. You're going to end up, end up with something like a horseshoe. Um, and you're going to have to be careful you don't break through into a, a lower layer that's impervious, but I doubt that'll happen. Um, it sounds like groundwater is coming up to a set level. Um, and um, it won't matter so much about the integrity of the wall because the water's coming from underneath. It's not coming from service runoff so much. So um, you're going to have to try and see what material you get. The biggest problem is how you do this while you're operating because it's just going to be so wet. It is possible to dredge a pond like this, but it's not, it doesn't sound like it's quite big enough because the whole property is only half an acre. So... Um, you're going to have to talk to your operate your earth movers and see whether they can put in um, high-powered pumps as you operate, or just dry the side out a bit. Specialised machines, um, swamp track excavator is probably your ideal machine. Uh, a swamp track dozer, bulldozer is probably a bit too unsubtle in such a small area. And then um, it should be good. It should come up well. Uh, you'll have a, a raised mound to grow things on and a deeper water to um, run, a, run a bit of aquaculture. Um, but it's a, a little bit more of a specialist job than your average pond that you build. As you see, it's not as easy as it sounds because you're dealing with the water already being there. Then there is the possibility. Sometimes when people say they have a swamp area on a property, there is a possibility that during the dry season, it's not a swamp. So if that happens to be the case, then capitalize on the drought, have the plan ready to go, and as soon as you get dry enough to work, get to work. But uh, it may not be the case that that ever happens where you are. If you live here, it's a swamp one month and a desert the next. Anyway, moving on. Um, let's talk about how you can use debt to create income that's not income so you don't pay taxes on it. I want to tell you, this is an advanced strategy John Pugliano is about to discuss. It requires finesse, it requires knowledge, and it requires a significant amount of equity to begin with to be sustainable. But it is something the wealthy have been doing since the dawn of money. Here we go, John Pugliano, turning debt into cash flow and not paying taxes on it. Hello, TSP. We have two questions about taxes, the implications of taxes. I'm going to combine those into one answer. First question comes from Karen. He sends a video about a number of proposed government wealth taxes. And a wealth tax, unlike an income tax or unlike an, a capital gains tax, it's where the government tax you on the assets you hold as opposed to the profits you, that you've made off of 
exchanging those assets. So your property tax that you pay on your home is a classic example of a wealth tax. While there's a number of proposals to increase those wealth taxes, they're popularly proposed because it's supposed to make the rich pay their fair share. The video link that Karen sends talks about a number of these schemes. And Karen's question is, what are the tax implications for holding real estate if this bill goes through? Well, before I answer that, let me jump to the next question from Chris. And he says, wealthy people like Warren Buffett never sell their equity and borrow against it. How does this work in practice? So the reason these two questions are related is because all the wealth taxes that the politicians want to put into effect basically are trying to circumvent the way current tax legislation is written, whereby if you hold an asset, you're only taxed when it's sold, and then you're taxed on the capital gain. That can be a short-term gain or a long-term gain. They're taxed at different rates, and the selling of the asset is not to be confused with income that would be earned from a dividend. Dividends are sort of like rent that's paid to you or a premium that's paid to you off of a asset that you would own. So it's not classified as a capital gain nor as earned income, and so it's generally taxed at a lower rate. Now to Chris's point about Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett is one of these billionaires that's constantly telling people that the tax code needs to be changed because rich people don't pay their fair share. He always claims that his secretary is in a higher tax bracket than he is in. But what he doesn't tell you is the reason that he pays so little in taxes is because he employs an army of tax attorneys and CPAs to structure his finances in such a way that he doesn't pay taxes. So, of course, it's total hypocrisy. The thing to remember here is that there's not just one way that a guy like Warren Buffett or Elon Musk or any of these billionaires use to mitigate their taxes. There's a multitude of complex strategies, but essentially just to boil it down and make it apply to regular middle class people's lives, it comes down to three main areas, and they're all predicated on the fact that with current tax law, you only pay taxes on the capital gain when the asset has been sold. So the baseline strategy is you never sell the asset. Not selling the asset is also very relevant because, again, according to current tax code, whenever a person dies, their heirs inherit the asset at a cost basis equal to the value on the day the original owner dies. So if your grandfather bought Apple stock 40 years ago and he has a million-dollar capital gain, if he were to die today and will that stock to you, you would no longer have a million-dollar capital gain. You would simply inherit the Apple stock with a cost basis of whatever today's closing price would be. That's another very powerful tool to mitigate taxes. So when you put this all together and you say, well, if you can never sell your assets, how can you make any money off of them? And that comes down to the three basic tax strategies. Number one, only take a dividend. Most wealthy people avoid selling their assets and simply structure their lives so that they can live off the dividend payment. And the dividend payment is generally taxed at a lower rate. The goal there is to make sure that the money is gaining a rate of return at least as high as the dividend rate so that the money grows into perpetuity, and that's how intergenerational wealth continues to grow, and it's essentially the same thing that endowment funds at universities and other places that use that same strategy. Only spend the dividend, and then you have wealth in perpetuity. 
The thing to always remember is that taking the dividend is the easiest and most widely used approach. It can not only be used by billionaires, but also by common everyday people. You can do that by investing primarily in high dividend paying stocks. Or if you're self-employed, you can take advantage by not paying yourself 100% of the profits from your company as earned income, but rather by paying a portion of it as a dividend. If you're not doing that, you should be talking to your CPA and understanding how that works. The next strategy is to use insurance, because when someone dies and their heirs inherit the insurance, that insurance is tax-free. And so a method of avoiding present capital gains or dividend taxes would be to take a portion of your wealth and take that money and purchase a life insurance policy. And then when you die again, that money is inherited by your heirs tax-free. Since the insurance company knows that you have a set amount of payout, you could borrow against it while you're currently alive. And then when you die and the estate is settled, the payout from the insurance policy pays off the money you borrowed while you were alive. So that's one way of borrowing against your wealth to mitigate taxes. The other method is to not use insurance, but just to simply borrow against your assets directly. So again, let's say you had a multi-million dollar portfolio. You could put that up as collateral, find a lender, borrow against it while you're living, pay the interest payment, and then when you die and the cost basis on those assets gets eliminated, your heirs can take that zero basis money tax-free and pay off the loan on your estate. The important thing to remember is that all tax mitigation strategies come with complexities and, in most cases, costs. And that cost may be illiquidity in the case of tying your money up into long-term investments that you're never going to sell. It could also be a loss of sovereignty over your wealth because in the case of an insurance company loan, you're actually taking your assets and turning them over to an insurance company rather than you having direct control. The biggest thing is the fees and the interest payments. The least complex and the most affordable method of tax mitigation is the dividend strategy. And that's because when you're borrowing against your assets, whether you're doing it in the form of a life insurance policy or just directly borrowing against the assets, you have to remember that no one's going to do that for free. Either the insurance company or the lender that's providing you with the loan money, they're going to do that because they're compensated with premiums, fees, or interest rates. And so before you go down that path of borrowing against your assets to avoid taxes, put all those numbers into an Excel spreadsheet and determine what's the long-term implication of those premiums, fees, and interest rates. And in a lot of cases, you'll find out that you're actually not getting as much of a tax break as you think you are because any money you're not paying in taxes is just going to the bank or the insurance company. And in some cases, you may actually be paying more in the fees and premiums and interest rates than you would be if you just paid the taxes outright. I'm running out of time, but as a quick example, let's just take a really simple case. Now, for this simple example... I'm going to avoid calculating the yield that your assets are gaining, and I'm just going to focus on how much you would pay in interest to borrow the money and what your tax rate would be. And let's take a simple example and say that you're being charged 3% a year for borrowing the money, and you're in a 15% long-term or dividend capital gains tax, which would be pretty common for most middle-class people. Well, in the first few years, obviously, if you're only paying 3% on that money, it's much more advantageous to let the interest rate on the loan accumulate than it would be to pay the 15% tax because the loan is only 3%, the tax is 15 
The problem is, is that remember, you're continuing to not only borrow additional amounts of money each year to support your lifestyle, but the interest itself is also accumulating. And so it's essentially the exact opposite of when you're paying down your mortgage. Instead of the interest and the principal decreasing each year, it's actually growing. And remember the miracle of compound interest. Over the long term, that can make you rich when you're a saver, but it also can bankrupt you when you're a borrower. Because in the example I gave with just a simple 3% interest rate, if that continues to compound year after year after year, by the time you get out into about year 8 or 9, your combined interest payment is going to be more than if you just paid the 15% tax to begin with. And then again, remember, that's going to continue to compound year after year. And so after 20, 30 years of borrowing, you'll pay multiple amounts more in the interest than you would have if you would have just paid the annual 15% tax to begin with. Of course, you could say, well, I won't let it go out longer than the break-even point. I'll just pay the loan off in, say, five years instead of letting it drag on into perpetuity. Well, the problem with that is, remember, the tax break you receive is that those assets never be sold until after you're deceased. So if you do pay off the loan or the interest on the loan with money that's not related to the assets that you're borrowing against, well, maybe it would have made more sense never to borrow the money to begin with and just paid it out of your cash stream. In any case... One of the reasons that the super rich can get away with this strategy and you can't is that if you're Bill Gates, you can probably arrange a sweetheart deal with the Bill and Melinda Gates Charity Foundation, whereby they provide you with a lifetime 0% interest rate loan. In that case, you've eliminated any of the interest payments and it makes total sense to borrow against yourself. So the bottom line, tax mitigation is complicated, it's complex, it can be expensive, it's important that you understand exactly what you're paying in fees to avoid the taxes. In some cases, it makes sense just to simply pay the extortion money. Well, hey, again, as always, thanks for the questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Short answer, this is why if you actually want to build wealth in your life, you hire an investment manager. You don't just have a financial advisor. I'm just saying you just heard what an investment uh, investment manager sounds like compared to a financial advisor who went to school for three weeks at the mothership of Edward Jones or whatever that hands you a pie chart and says just keep putting money in it. The other strategy here is you combine strategies, right? So your overriding strategy is made up of multiple strategies. So it's again, you're at strategy. What is the strategy? To give the government as little as possible and to have cash flow sufficient to live a life that I want. Then we employ techniques. So it's really not sub-strategies, it's techniques. Techniques and tactics, and they get combined together holistically. In the world of Bitcoin, which John didn't mention, and I think that's where this is all coming from, because I've mentioned that in a retirement strategy for somebody with a large amount of Bitcoin would be to borrow against it and use the next debt to pay off the last debt. And Michael Saylor is the one that's brought that to kind of the Bitcoin community. You'd have to have a significant amount of Bitcoin. Well, it's not so much how much you'd have to have to get enough flow from it safely, you'd have to have a fairly large balance. And you would be in the neighborhood of the first loan that you would take in beginning this cycle would be somewhere around one and a half to three percent, and you'd have to work this out with a spreadsheet, and you'd have to be conservative because you can get liquidated in these types of situations. But if you go... If you have enough to start with and you go low enough and you remain... If your appreciation value of the asset over time exceeds... 
exceeds the amount of flow that you're taking out of it, you can do it almost in perpetuity. And like John said, then when you die, your heir would simply pay off the loan. Uh, the loan would actually be paid off at your death if you did it right so that they didn't never touch that money and they get the remaining balance. You can do that with life. And there's a lot of things you can do it with. The rich notoriously do this with art, and it's a scam. It's an absolute scam. It's why somebody buys a painting for $200,000. And then they have their scammy appraisers, and they just keep going back and having the art reappraised every five years. And the appraiser goes, yeah, it's worth $400,000 now. Yeah, I think you could get $950,000 for it at auction. And no one ever sells it. And it's worth absolute dog shit. Okay? Like, this is a, it is a scam and it is a real technique at the same time. And the richest people in the world have been doing it for as long as we've had the current economic system in place. In fact, prior, like, they've done this in other economic systems. And the place that it's done the most is with real estate. And this is back to what I always teach. The tax code is as big as two giant 1980s metropolitan yellow pages. And about 5% of it is what you have to do. And the other 95% is how you get out of doing it. Next up, we have Nicole Sauce with a couple different questions. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a couple of questions from the Telegram group. The first one comes from Galaxy Girl, and Galaxy Girl asks how to make fruit leather in a dehydrator. She wants to make strawberry rhubarb fruit leather, and basically this is a ratio. So you want to have 50-50 rhubarb to strawberries. So one cup strawberries, one cup rhubarb, for example. I would taste the puree and decide if you want to sweeten that or not. I don't like to add sugar to things, so I wouldn't do it. But other people want their fruit leather to be a little bit, well, sweeter because... You're addicted to sugar, man. Come on, deal with that. Just kidding. Anyway, so once you have that pureed together, you're going to take a piece of parchment paper or a fruit leather insert. They make plastic ones for food dehydrators. Or you can use tin foil and maybe oil it a little bit. But spread the puree mix about an eighth of an inch thick. I use a spatula for this. And then run it in your food dehydrator until it's done. And the way you find out it's done is you test it. Does it have the consistency of fruit leather? Then you take it out. Now, you're going to set it at whatever setting on your food dehydrator is most oriented towards fruit. And if you're using the Excalibur, that's going to be a number amount. If you're using the American Harvest, it will say fruits. So that makes fruit leather. If you let it go too long, though, you will over-dehydrate your fruit leather and you will have fruit powder. Yes, this is possible. This is possible. So just keep an eye on it. I would let it go for like four hours and then check it and then see how far it's gotten in that time and then go from there. It's going to vary a little bit in time based on the humidity in the air around you, your specific food dehydrator. If you do not have... A, a box slash fan style food dehydrator like the Cabela's dehydrator or the Excalibur, I would definitely rotate trays around. Like if you use the American Harvest every time you check on it, just because different parts of that dehydrator dehydrate at different rates of speed. That's how easy it is. If you want to just shortcut it instead of putting tinfoil down, you can put saran wrap. When you take it out of the dehydrator, What you do is you take that 
fruit leather, you peel it off the tin foil or the tray or the parchment paper and then put it on a piece of saran wrap and roll that rather than just roll it in on itself. That makes it a lot easier to then use later. As I said, if you want to try to dehydrate it on the saran wrap you have, the reason I don't do that, guys, is spreading the puree onto the saran wrap is kind of a pain in the rear because it wrinkles up and then you have to handle it or you have to have it on something flat and put that in there. And I just find it's a lot easier to do it on parchment paper or tinfoil or those plastic trays they make for fruit roll-ups. Anyway, I hope this gets you started on your fruit roll-up journey. They're super easy to make. Peach ones are good. Apricot ones are good. Strawberry rhubarb is good. Strawberries alone are good. Blueberries are good. I haven't tried blackberries and I have not tried grapes or anything like that. I imagine grapes wouldn't work so well because they're not a pulpy fruit. I've done apple. You want to add lemon juice to that just because it oxidizes. So those are all of the combinations I've messed with. And it makes a really tasty snack if you're trying to keep the unnatural sugars down. It's not a bad way to go. And they store really well rolled up in saran wrap. I throw them in the freezer, though, for storage and then defrost them and use them. Next question comes from XOXO Cookies. Great name, XOXO Cookies. Any tips for pressure canning on a flat top electric stove? It's a newer model. We haven't done any canning except for water bath because I heard it can break the glass. This is my tip. Don't do it. I wouldn't have even water bath canned on that, although I can see how that would work. If you have a particularly long batch, it may trap enough heat under that to crack the glass. And if you crack the glass, you have to replace the glass. That's a huge pain in the neck. I have personal friends who have decided to disregard this advice and do it anyway, and they cracked the glass and it broke. You just don't want to go there. For the cost of $129, you can get a Camp Chef outdoor propane standing on its own legs set of burners. You have two burners. That means you can can two batches at one time if you have if you have two canners that's what i use mine doesn't have the stand-up legs it's actually a borrowed one from a neighbor but i use that outside anyway even though i have a gas stove inside you want to know why because when you pressure can or when you can it puts an enormous amount of steam and heat into the air and then my air conditioner has to kick in to cool things off in my house so what i've done is I have moved all of my canning outside. I pack the jars inside in the air conditioning, bring them outside, and put them in the canner and run the canner outside, let them cool outside, label them, bring them back inside. And that's all been enabled by a camp chef that you hook up to a propane tank. And $129 is not a bad price. That's today's Amazon Prime Deal of the Day sale. This is Wednesday, July... 13th. And if you go to tspaz.com first, then Jack will get some affiliate love if you get that thing. If you do not have the the budget to buy a brand new thing, I've also used a Coleman stove to do canning and it will keep up with pressure canning. The smaller single burner backpacker ones don't work very well. Those don't work for canning, but the Coleman will work. The Camp Chef works way better and is totally worth every penny for it to get your canning. And getting your canning out of the house, if you think about it this way, you're spending less on air conditioning if you are in a hot climate to can outside. So maybe it all works out for you in the long run anyway in a year or two. So think about long term on that way. Anyway, sorry about that, but 
glass tops and pressure canners do not mix. Your other alternative is to get your hands on an electric pressure canner, but that's even more than the $129 Camp Chef that you can just run off propane outside. That said, Presto makes the best pressure canner that's electric. It is better than the Carry, and it came back into stock last week. It is approximately $360, $370 to buy one of those, so not cheap, but it can do five quarts at one time, and it's a pretty slick thing because you can just hit on and go, and you can also put that outside so you put the heat outside. Do you guys sense a theme here? It's really great to can outside and not in your house if you live, especially if you live in a hot climate. And if you don't, and you don't have air conditioning, sometimes that overheats your house too in August. You feel me? Anyway, I hope this helps you navigate your pressure canning journey. If you have more questions, send them to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. I am Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast. And I also did want to mention we have a really badass class coming up in Camden, Tennessee at Special Operations Equipment, July 30th and 31st. It is a swale workshop run by Billy Bond from Perma Pastures Farm and his son, William Bond. They are going to talk through how to plan a swale, when to use swales, when not to use swales. That's very important, when not to use swales. So how to design them, how to dig them with heavy equipment, how to dig them with shovels, and how to plan the planting. That's all going to be happening in Camden, Camden, Tennessee, July 30th and 31st. If you want to grab a ticket, they are only $197. Includes your camping, breakfast, and lunch both days. That's over at selfrelianceFestival.com forward slash swale or use the link that Jack puts in the show notes. Make it a great week. And I do have a link in the show notes for the stove that Nicole mentioned and to the swale workshop that she mentioned. If you're anywhere near... Tennessee, you might want to check that out. Again, I got both of those links in the show notes for you. Next up, we already had a question about making a pond. What about a question with a pond that has a problem, or more accurately in this case, the potential for a problem, an invasion of willow trees? Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer, and this one is on a pond and some trees. Uh, all right, question for Nick Ferguson. What is the best way to contain willow trees on a pond bank, specifically the levee? What is the best way to remove them and have them not come back? Background, I have a, a two-acre pond that is fairly young. It had just been expanded and a new levee built before we moved in five years ago. We've had volunteer willows pop up along the edge of the pond and are mostly happy with that, but I would like to contain them to certain areas to allow us to still enjoy the pond as we continue to stock and grow the fish within. The levee is a concern, as I've been told, that if trees grow for a while and then are killed or die, it can increase the likelihood that the levee will fail when the roots rot. That's true. I've attached a couple pictures of the pond for reference. Thank you. Those were very helpful. Google images when it was built and after it was full and some ground-level shots of the tree growth around it. I've tried cutting the unwanted trees down with a chainsaw, and they just come back the next year. That's called coppicing. <laughs> the pond level fluctuates a lot as it is rain-dependent, and the watershed that feeds it isn't very large. The level is very low right now, and I feel it would be a good time to tackle this problem. 
Well, that's a fantastic question, and it gets straight to a very important point that I always drill down on with clients during a consult when they have a pond on their property. Whenever we have impounded water, that is an earthen structure somebody built to hold back water from flowing downhill, we have a structure that is resisting natural forces. Our goal is to maintain that structure and ensure that it is stable and has longevity because there is a lot of money, a.k.a. embodied energy, bound up in the construction of the impoundment structure. In plain talk, there's a whole lot of money sunk into a dam and it'd suck if it all washed downhill, right? So, one of the big concerns are going to be true... <sighs> one of the big concerns are going to be tree roots infiltrating the solid clay or soil wall and poking a hole in it. Those trees don't last forever, and when they die, what do they leave behind? Dead, rotting roots. Rotten wood, shaped like a pipe. And when it rots completely, you have a tube through the soil that water can flow through that just has a little bit of rotten wood in it. Now, it'd be a shame if that tube were to carry water through it, huh? So, rule number one is no trees on impoundments. I'm going to say it again. No trees on impoundments. You can have trees growing all along the native soil line, just not any of the man-made soil impoundment structure. Trees along the natural shore, fantastic. Trees along the dam wall, disaster. If you allow trees to grow on an impoundment, the question isn't if you will have water leaking. The question is when will you have water leaking. The good thing is, based on the pictures you shared, they don't really look that big, not too big to deal with. Now, personally, I hate using herbicides, but, um, you know, what you described was how to coppice trees. You're going out there and you're cutting down the trees and then they just re-sprout and grow back. So if you cut them down, they're just going to come back. If you get out there and weakly mow them down, you will exhaust the sugar stores in the roots and the trees will eventually die. It's possible, but, you know, that's going to take a lot of labor. Or you can go the lazy route, get it done quick. Cut as low as you can, spray or paint the stump with a brush-killing herbicide. That should take care of the trees growing there. However, if you don't routinely mow or weed-eat the seedling trees, new ones will just grow in that edge environment. It's a great place for water-loving trees like willows to grow, and they will always reseed and grow there. Alternatively, you can cut them down and then fence the area so that goats and sheep can access the water line. The tender new growth will be irresistible, especially to goats. They'll do the job for you of cutting back all that new regrowth. So you chop it down and then you let it regrow and the goats go in there and it's goat candy. And then you only need to periodically put them back in the area to eat down any new seedlings. So there you have it. I mean, mechanical controls use labor with equipment or with just some hand tools, which means you have to do the work. Chemical controls save lots of time and effort but carry inherent risks. Biological controls means you get to allow an animal to be happy and do your work for you. I'm sure it's no secret what my stance is. I always prefer to let a goat make me happy twice. Once while doing my work for me, controlling the brush, and a second time, slow roasted in a smoker over hickory smoke. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. So that's all great. Everything he said will work. It's a great way to approach the issue. 
There's another option, though. What we would really like to have in this situation, if we don't want to graze it with goats, we don't have to want to constantly have to mow it, we don't want to constantly be fighting, wouldn't it be great if there was something that we could put there that would outcompete the willow trees and strengthen the levy versus weaken it? Now, what would be the ideal thing? Well, the ideal thing would be a runner grass like Raleigh St. Augustine. There's a problem, though. Raleigh St. Augustine is a runner grass, can't outcompete the willow, right? Raleigh St. Augustine is not very drought tolerant long term. Now, it can go dormant and come back, but it doesn't really grow in droughty environments because as a runner grass, its root system is shallow. If you've ever had to cut sod with Raleigh St. Augustine, you know it's a, it's just a mess to get through, but you go down an inch or so and no, it's completely devoid of roots Because it's so intensive about its root mass that nothing grows through it really easily. So there's no other plants with deeper roots among it. Cool, huh? So what was like Raleigh St. Augustine that could outcompete a willow tree? Bamboo. Bamboo will not ruin a dam breast because it does not send down deep roots. It's a giant runner grass. So it stabilizes systems like this. And if you look at Lawton's work... They often plant, almost always plant, bamboo on dam breasts because of this very nature. And now what you have, and over, you will have to fight your willows for a while until your bamboo fills in. But once that bamboo fills in, you won't have any willow trees because they won't be able to get up and going anymore. So you may have to do some manual control while you establish bamboo. And so, to me, if I live in a climate where bamboo will work, and I put in a system like this, it's actually the, one of the first things I want to I do to stabilize and outcompete on that very area that we don't want any trees growing, because it is a very attractive place for willows. That's why you will constantly see willows invading uh, natural and man-made ponds all over the place. Next up, we have a question about replacing a toilet for Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to do another segment for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Leos, and he says, My wife and I are biting the bullet and going to full replace our old toilet. I've done this before and more or less know my way around, but I was kind of wondering what sort of advice you might have on this. Brand you love brands to avoid, stuff that isn't in the box, stuff that you buy to use because it's better than what comes in the box, etc. Okay, so there's a few points here. Let's talk about replacing the toilet first, and then we'll talk about what brands to look at. So first off, make sure you have all your tools on hand before you start. Because a lot of times, working in a bathroom, they tend to be rather small, rather cramped, and it's pretty difficult to go and get a tool when you're, you know, pulling on an old toilet. Now, uh, the first thing you got to worry about is disconnecting the water. So turn off the shutoff, of course. Then you want to get all the water out of that toilet you can. So once the water's shut off, take and flush the toilet. Now that's going to get rid of most of the water. Whatever's in the tank, mostly, but then it's going to still leave the water in the bowl. 
Now, what I love is one of those little suction pumps, those hand suction pumps. They kind of look like a caulking gun, but they just have a, um, a shaft you pull back on and it sucks the water out. Those are great because they can get down in behind the trap in there and suck out all that leftover water. If you don't have that, try to scoop out the most you can with, say, a small cup or a measuring cup, something like that. Then use a bunch of towels or rags, more likely. Don't use your wife's good towels. You'll get in trouble. Shove as many rags down there as you can, get rid of as much water as you can, wring it out in the sink or have a bucket nearby to get rid of that water into. Then once you've got as much as you can, take three or four more dry rags and then shove them down in the toilet. That's going to soap up, sop up the rest of that water and it's going to help you make less of a mess. Now, uh, you've got your supply line disconnected. The next thing you need to do is there's going to be those two nuts for the closet bolts on the floor. And a lot of times they're brass, but they still get rusted, corroded, and stuck in place. And they can, you can end up having a really bad time with that. Now, if you're throwing your old toilet out and those bolts get stuck in there, I've been known to just take a hammer and give it one good solid whap because the, the porcelain's pretty small, pretty thin on the outsides of those bolts. So if you need to, don't be afraid of cracking that porcelain to pull it up. But if, if it comes off great, then the toilet could be stuck in place because there's a wax seal there. So sometimes you need to rock it back and forth just a little bit. Try to take it out in one piece. It gives you something more to hold on to. And another little life pro tip. If you have one of those Irwin quick clamp spreader clamps, uh, you can flip them around, in, basically make them inside out so that they spread things out instead of clamping them together. Put it just underneath the, the rim of the bowl, spread it out nice and tight, and that gives you a nice handle to lift up on the bowl itself. Now, the next thing is have a scraper on hand because two things that you deal with when you're pulling up a toilet. You're going to spill some water, and you're probably going to get some of that nasty old wax from the bottom, the wax seal, on things. And it sticks to everything. So take your time and clean up that old wax seal that's left behind on the floor. Use a putty knife, a scraper, whatever it is, and have some old rags, wear some rubber gloves, because that stuff gets all over you. Give that a good cleaning, and then you're ready to replace the toilet. Now, let's talk about brands to look for. Now, over the years, I've had really good luck with American Standard Toilets. They're made really well, and they just hold up. But to be honest, I've also had just as good luck with those $119 toilet-in-a-box dual flush imports that you can get at Lowe's or Home Depot. They're great. They have those push buttons up on the top, you know, uh, one for low flush and two for solids. And they've held up really great for me. Honestly, I've had as good luck with those as I've had with American standards. So don't shy away from them if that's what you're looking at. Now, get yourself a toilet in a box because then you have everything or almost everything you need instead of trying to buy everything separate. So you're going to get the toilet, you're going to get the tank, or the bowl, the tank, you're going to get hopefully the closet bolts for bolting it down to the floor, a wax seal, a toilet seat, and sometimes you get a supply line. So check on the box and see, am I going to get a supply line? Am I going to reuse my old supply line? Or do I need to pick up one of those braided flexible lines at the store before I get started? And the other thing that I recommend is inside the box is going to be the thinnest wax seal you've ever seen. It might be an inch thick. That's all it is. So throw that in your toolbox, put it on the, you know, your workbench shelf somewhere and just file it away because you're not going to use that now. You're just going to keep that as an emergency. But what you're going to get is get a max wax 
toilet seal or wax seal as they call it. It's two to three times as thick as the standard wax seal and it has a plastic kind of cone in the center to funnel everything down. So it gives you extra protection for a leak and much more wax. So that you put that wax seal up underneath the toilet, stick it into place, set it down on the you know, the flange where it goes, and then sit on that toilet and rock it back and forth. You got a lot more wax that's going to spread out and help seal the toilet. Then tighten down the bolts. Do not over tighten them because you can crack that porcelain. Hook up your supply line, turn on your water, and from there you should be good to go. So I hope that helps. Guys, keep the questions coming. Send them to Jack. Anything and everything, you know, handyman stuff, plumbing stuff, generator stuff, fuel storage, being an entrepreneur, whatever there is, send them along and I will answer them for you. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, the easiest way is to drop by the workshop on YouTube. We have three live streams a week, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday evening. We do Thursday night is repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. Saturday... We have all kinds of fun things. Sometimes we do top five post-apocalyptic movies. We got uh, the Going Home Book Series Book Club live discussion. And Sunday evenings is an interview with interesting people from around the preparedness world. So guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And there is a link in the show notes to the seal that Tim recommended in that segment. So... Now it's time for my segment. I'm going to keep it brief today because I do have to get ready for uh, this seminar that starts an hour and a half from, uh, no, it's an, it, uh, an hour and a half from right now as I record this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about education today, but I actually want to talk about the lack of education today. I, I've spoken quite a bit in the past about Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. And the Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity is that people do not have to be stupid actually intellectually slow to be stupid. They can be made stupid to where they'll respond to a catchphrase, to where they'll do terrible things. And, and stupid people are very dangerous when they act as a mob. And they're much more difficult to re resist than, let's say, a violent threat. We can we can respond to violence with counter-violence. But stupidity in a mob is, is like a virus. It's like a disease. And I was thinking about this as I read through some potential quotes about education today, and I found this one by Aristotle. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Now, we've reached the absolute pinnacle of stupid in the modern world today because this is something that people no longer have the ability to do because they've been made stupid. So, for instance, it's it, in my experience... With very few exceptions, it is impossible to have a conversation about any of the big areas of disagreement today taking either side of the issue with someone that's on the opposing side. Even if you were to play devil's advocate and, and take the opposite side that you have and then try to speak to somebody that you generally agree with, they will shut you down immediately. Why? Because their mind is no longer educated. And we have confused what an educated mind is in this world with, with being able to regurgitate a bunch of things and put some initials after your name. I have literally heard young people say, when I say young people, I'm talking anywhere from, from, from late teens to, to mid-30s, okay? It's like crossover of, of millennials and, and, and uh, Gen Y or whatever they're calling them, right? I have literally heard them refer to themselves as the most educated generation in history. 
If you refer to yourself as the most educated generation in history, you have just defined for me. I'm not going to let you say that you're you're going to you're, you're defining this for your entire generation. I don't think we should define individuals as generations. They're useful demography to look at. But the person making that statement, you are you are one of the least educated minds walking around on the planet. You are at the peak of the of the Dunning-Kruger bell curve of stupid You live in planet stupid if you refer to yourself as the most educated generation and you're proud of this. And they usually say it with, and we can't get, and we don't have any money and we're broke and we're abused, and but we're the most educated in history and we're just being taken advantage of. And like, you're, you're going to stay in that place unless you choose to exit it. The educated mind can look. I'm telling you, I know that sometimes as a podcaster, I can come across like, he just thinks he's right. I am passionate about what I talk about. And generally when I come to you with a conviction on something, it's because I've done the research. I will still have the conversation with someone that has an opposing view to me, and I can entertain their thought without accepting it. I can put myself in their place. In fact, what I'm going to tell you today about this when it comes to education And the reason most people fail at self-education is they're incapable of doing this. And I've talked about this before. I've done entire shows on how to examine an issue and how to research an issue. And the first thing you have to do when you are determining, do I believe this thing or not, right? More accurately, should I believe this thing or not, is number one, determine if it actually matters to you. Obviously, if it's not going to actually impact your life and affect you, don't consider putting that much time into this this exercise in, unless you're just intellectually curious. And then at le least know that you're intellectually, know that it's not really going to change the price of tea in China at the end of the day. It's not really going to change your life and you're not going to change the issue. And most issues, no matter what you think, you're not going to change the issue anyway. It's just how you structure your life based on this knowledge. But once you've determined that, yes, I want to, I want to go down this rabbit hole. Whatever your initial bias leads you to, if I had to say right now, am I on left side or right side of this issue, A or B, whatever you say, and say it as quickly as you can because that will give you the true answer, you then go and build a case to prove yourself wrong. And if you want to know why people like myself are so convicted in our beliefs when we present them, so deeply convicted with such passion for that belief system. It's because it's what we have done. I have gone out and I have acted as though I am an attorney and I am representing this side of the issue. And just like it doesn't matter if my client is guilty or innocent, right? my job is to build a case for my client, the best legal case I can to give my client the best defense possible, even if I think he's guilty. Right? That's how I want to build the logical case against my innate natural position. I must attempt to destroy my argument. And I build the strongest intellectual case I can for it. And you can be any way you do it. You can, you can be the person that just reads and retains like I do. You can take notes. And you should be able to, at the end of that level of research, go into a debate with somebody and maybe not win it, but do well in a debate to clearly articulate your case for the other side. And then what you do, now you build a counter case to your original bias. And only after the time you've done that can you possibly be informed about the issue. 
Because I guarantee you, if you take either side and you go in to prove yourself right, you will succeed even when you're wrong. And you'll do it every time, especially in this day and age. There's never been a time where knowledge has been more freely available than 2022. And that, came, that was the same in 2021 and 2020. Every year, knowledge is more freely available than ever if you seek it. But due to that fact, there will be information to confirm any single thing you want. If you want to say birds aren't real, the conspiracy guy created that, I think it's a joke, you will be able to build the case that birds aren't real. It'll be a stupid case, but you'll be able to do it. If you want to say the earth is flat because you're a flat tart, you will be able to build a case to prove yourself right to yourself if you attempt to do it. As ridiculous as both of those things are, And people actually believe the second one. There's a lot of people. Smart people think the earth is flat because they have been made stupid through propaganda. They have had such an adverse reaction. I think this is why it is. Why, why can smart people come down and believe this? One, the marketing of it by people that make money off of the gullible is really well done. But I think mostly it's an adverse reaction to realizing how many things they have been lied to about by government. So if all this stuff that they say is a lie, then maybe the shape of the earth is a lie too. That's like having a, 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 an allergic reaction to a drug. But can you entertain the idea? I've entertained the idea. I've never accepted the idea, but I've entertained the idea. Because it's an interesting intellectual discussion. Believe it or not, it's interesting how... The people that are flat tards, as I call them, make a really good case for one thing, and what they fail at is a unification of their model, because they don't have a unified model, because there isn't one, because you can't do it. But the way they'll explain certain aspects of it, it's like, that took a lot of mental gymnastics. And that's actually interesting that you could make that case that way. And that is the sign of an educated mind. Can I entertain a thought? Now, does that mean you need to entertain the thought? Of a flat earth? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Can you? Right? To be able to. That is by choice. If you're able to do something, it's by choice. I can run and I can walk. When I get up, I will choose which one I want to do based on the situation. So when it comes to entertaining an idea, do I have time for this? Does it affect me? And am I interested? But if you can't do it at all, If you can never entertain the other side of a debate or an argument or an idea, then you are not a free thinker. You just aren't. And the, what's the other saying? There is no more a person enslaved than one who falsely believes himself to be free. And slavery and freedom only exist in one place, my friends. Your mind. Your mind. That is where you truly win or lose the battle. No matter what happens to you, true freedom must be mental. You must have mental sovereignty to have any other form of sovereignty. So the next time you hear something you disagree with, if you've never investigated it, pick one or two things. Investigate the other side. Build a case for what you disagree with. Then build a counter case. And then you will have a truly educated mind as to that particular issue. Because most people that think they know a thing, if you told them to sit down and write everything that they know about it, they don't know jack diddly crap. Catchphrases are not arguments. Freedom isn't free is not a logical argument. That's not, that's not a logical argument. 
but we can sure use it to convince the stupid in mass to support violently killing people in other countries. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you like my show and the work that I do, please consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That's all I'll say about that. And I have a great membership program. And I just got the deal done. I'm waiting for the blurb to come back. I'm getting you guys a good discount on great body armor. Yep. We're getting that for you at MSB. I'm hoping that we'll have the blurb back from their people and be able to launch it on Monday. Tomorrow you are going to get, guess what, a rewind because Bell is coming. Bell is Dorothy's new puppy. Uh, Joel and Wendy from Fortress Canine will be here, and I owe them my time while they're here. So I'm going to do a rewind for you. And at 1 p.m. today, so it's... Uh, uh, just, what, two hours and 15 minutes. I will be presenting, of course, I have no idea what time you're listening to, but I will be presenting at John Bush's uh, Free the Children Education, Homeschool Education Summit. You might want to check that out. There will be a blurb on that in the uh, Daily Mail today. You should get on the Daily Mail. And, again, consider becoming an MSB member. Get all those discounts. Get your money back. It's 50 bucks a year. That's 18 cents an episode. If you think a show's worth 18 cents an episode, Join the member support brigade, and if you pay with Bitcoin or any crypto for that matter, I give you a really special deal. Just select it when you fill out the form to join, and it'll come to me in an email, and I will get back to you with what that deal is. And lastly, remember, if you are an audio listener, you don't, and today you have no choice because there is no video for today's show. I don't do video for expert counsel. If uh, you are an audio listener and you're listening on like Spotify or something like that, podcasts are better on Fountain.fm. Check out Fountain. Uh, you can earn free sats just by listening to the content you're going to listen to anyway. It's not a huge amount of money, but you're stacking sats by doing your daily activities. This is the future of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network for you holdouts. It, it, it's a thing that sooner or later you'll accept because everybody's going to accept it. Being paid for your time and attention is going to be a thing in the future, and we will be investigating that next week as well. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.